Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. Sami, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. The IDF's response to the slaughter of 1,400 Israeli civilians by Hamas has been the slaughter now close to 7,000 Palestinians, 18,000 wounded in their stated aim to destroy Hamas. Can Hamas be destroyed, Sami? I think that while everybody is talking about the prospect of being Hamas destroyed, I think they are undermining the reasons why Hamas emerged. And I think that Hamas is a product of its environment. It's not an emergence in and of itself in a vacuum. The reality is that, and I think this is a consensus even amongst policymakers, even in Western capitals, is even if you get rid of Hamas, even let's suppose a ground invasion takes place and Hamas is removed from the scene and everything, the environment that created Hamas is still there. The environment being one in which there is this very large concentration camp, the word concentration camp being used to emphasize the concentration of a population in a limited area that is called the Gaza Strip. Therefore, it can be described as a concentration camp. And the idea of this enduring occupation in which a child who goes to a school that is less than 10-15 minutes away has to wake up at 4 a.m. because she has to go through five different checkpoints very similar to scenes that we used to see in apartheid South Africa with regards to the occupation of the black population in South Africa. So the idea being is that even though the aims are being touted that Hamas is the ultimate target I do think that there is a recognition that this is an impossible task because even if you defeat Hamas another movement will simply emerge because of the environment but it's also worth noting that I don't think the target is Hamas either primarily because if you look at what's happening in the West Bank today where Hamas doesn't exist there is also an escalation of violence over there and repeated attempts by Netanyahu to try to annex swathes of territory in the West Bank which has resulted in escalation of violence and hundreds being killed just this year alone which suggests that Israel's target is not actually Hamas. Israel's target is the annexation of more lands and more territories to expand and then hand over those lands and territories to new batch of Israeli settlers, including those who might come from Brooklyn, New York, uh, to hand over to a new batch of Israeli settlers to expand the borders of Israel to achieve Netanyahu's ultimate aim, which he highlighted at the United Nations when he held up the map of his vision of the Middle East in which Palestine was completely wiped off the map. Yeah, and you make a very good point about what's happening in the West Bank. I think since uh, October 7th, 95 Palestinians have been killed. Uh, many, I believe, by settlers. The settlers have been armed by Itamar Ben-Gavir, the National Security Minister, who's handing out uh, assault rifles, 18,000 assault rifles. And as you say, Palestinian communities, I believe, eight now have been threatened and driven out of their homes and off their land by these settler vigilante thugs. Let me ask you, Sami, 
about Palestinians and the wider Arab community. Because for a long time, Palestinians and their cause had seemed to be forgotten by their fellow Arabs. Was that the case? And if so, how much has that changed since 7th of October? I think what's worth noting first and foremost is that we have to differentiate between the Arab public and the Arab regimes. It's important to remember that the normalization push between Arab regimes and Israel would never take place in democracies. And we're seeing that abundantly clear in the way that Arabs have taken to the streets in their millions in support for the Palestinians and demanding that their regimes and governments do more in order to help the Palestinians. I do think, however, that before October 7th, there was certainly a despair amongst the public opinion that the Palestinian cause was certainly struggling. Saudi Arabia had been pushing forward with normalization of ties. The Saudi crown prince had stated that they were getting closer every single day. Netanyahu was holding up the map where he had erased Palestine from the map and simultaneously in the same breath was saying that normalization with Saudi would be the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War. The Israeli ambassador to the UN told Cannes Television, the Israeli channel, that normalization with Saudi Arabia would mean the, quote, the complete Arab abandonment of the Palestinians. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish president who's often been loud on Palestine, met with Netanyahu for the first time at the United Nations in order to try to push for warmer ties and to build a joint gas pipeline, a new economic corridor. There was this sense that those who should be standing with the Palestinians were beginning to see it as a side issue. And there was even a Reuters uh, exclusive that suggested that the, or that said that the Saudis had informed the Americans that they were willing to discard their demand for a Palestinian state if Biden could guarantee a NATO-style security agreement and nuclear uh, technology and also support for Vision 2030. So certainly from this angle, there was a sense that the Palestinian cause was being abandoned, that perhaps it was dying. There was a sense that, in the words of, 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 of one particular uh, journalist who said that the powers of evil are winning. But I think that since October 7th, it's less that people are celebrating the killing of civilians or even celebrating what Hamas did, but more the celebration that at a time in which the Palestinian cause was supposed to be at its weakest, it suddenly caused the greatest threat to Israel since 1948. Which and that's what's forced a lot of people to revise the notion that normalization can be a solution. And we've even seen outlets like Bloomberg now argue that normalization over the heads of the Palestinians quite simply does not work. So I think what's being celebrated now on the streets is not death or war or the like, but what's being celebrated is the demonstration that Palestinian agency exists, that they cannot be ignored, and that the Palestinian cause remains very much alive, and that public opinion matters, and that it's forcing a shift in the stance of many of these regimes that had been gearing towards abandoning the Palestinian cause. So I think that certainly now in terms of public opinion, last or before October 7th, there was a sense it was dying. After October 7th, everybody believes it's very much alive. Mm, yeah, and, I, and you make a very important distinction there between the people and, and the regimes. And these authoritarian regimes really now are in a bit of a quandary in the Middle East. On the one hand, they see Hamas as a militant Islamist organization akin to the Muslim Brotherhood and therefore a potential threat. And on the other hand, there is the popular support that you've touched on for Palestine as Israel continues its relentless bombing, thereby increasing support for the resistance that is now embodied by Hamas. How are these regimes doing in managing that quandary they 
suddenly found themselves in. I think that we've seen a gradual development in the stances of the regimes. If you look at, for example, even we'll start with Erdogan, for example. Erdogan gave an unprecedented statement at the start of the, the, the bombing campaign. Unprecedented meaning that instead of calling Israel a terrorist state, he tried to be neutral and called for an immediate de-escalation and tried to mediate because he didn't want to jeopardize the ties with Netanyahu. But when hundreds of thousands of Turks took to the streets to denounce Erdogan's stance, to stand with the Palestinians, Erdogan has found himself scrambling to appease the Turkish population by adopting harder rhetoric, by deploying his foreign minister to adopt harder rhetoric in a bid not to be seen to be left behind by a public opinion that is overwhelmingly in favor of the Palestinians. Saudi Arabia initially released a statement in which they went back to calling Israel an occupying power. For those who are unaware, in recent Saudi statements under the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the word colonize and occupier, ihtilal, has genuinely started to vanish from statements and instead we've even seen Saudi at times refer to Israel by its name as Israel but between quotation marks as Bin Salman has been pushing for this normalization of ties. Bin Salman buckled under the public pressure and went back to calling Israel a colonizer and a colonizing power. Uh, the UAE was called by Blinken. Abdullah bin Zayed put on Twitter that he had spoken with Blinken and then released a statement two hours later or three hours later blaming the Palestinians. The backlash was such that the UAE announced aid uh, to the Gazans and it's also let loose its commentators to really push or, or lash out against the Israelis. For those who know the UAE, you'll know that commentators only speak within the framework allowed to them by the UAE. So when you see, for example, prominent commentators lashing out very aggressively against the Israelis, despite UAE having normalized, I think that's part of the UAE of Mohammed bin Zayed being very careful not to be caught on the wrong side of public opinion. And also UAE has canceled all celebrations and events and concerts and parties in order not to be seen to be callous in terms of how it's approaching uh, Gaza. It is worth noting, however, that while in the initial few days we did see uh, in Saudi Arabia in particular a suggestion from the Saudi crown prince that he was buckling under public opinion, we saw he lifted the restrictions on the holy mosques uh, with regards to making prayers for Palestine and Gaza that's been restricted over the past year by the Saudi crown prince. We're seeing as a result of lobbying on the part of Jared Kushner who spoke just a couple of days before this recording, who spoke at the Davos in the Desert Forum, as a result of lobbying from Blinken, we're seeing bin Salman now deploy Islamic uh, clerics or Muslim clerics in the mosques to affirm to the population that they should, quote, not talk about issues they're not qualified, that they should trust their leaders and know that their leaders uh, uh, can do the right thing, and that the issues of Palestine and Gaza are not for them to discuss because in the words of one sheikh, one Muslim cleric, we are like slugs in comparison to our leaders who know the affairs uh, properly. Those who are coming back from Saudi Arabia, anecdotes, they are reporting that there is not much talk about Gaza and instead they feel there is a repression now about conversations regarding Palestine. Al Arabiya, which is backed by Saudi Arabia, did an interview with Khalid Mishal of the Hamas Politburo in which the line of questioning was very aggressive uh, against Khalid Mishel and against Hamas and indeed against the Palestinians demanding why they did this now uh, and brought all this destruction onto the Gazans. Something that the ordinary street are not talking about but something that Saudi Arabia appears to be pushing as a line of narrative within Saudi Arabia itself. It's worth noting that Oman, Kuwait and UAE while cancelling their concerts and events, Bin Salman has not cancelled his Riyadh season. Shakira is due to arrive 
on the weekend, Tyson Fury and Ngannou are expected to continue with their boxing match. This, if you look at the Saudi newspaper, the Ukad, which is the national newspaper, there's very little, if any, criticism of the Israelis. There's uh, most of the pages are de- are dedicated to Bin Salman's economic reforms, with Gaza being mentioned in the corner, perhaps of a front page or the like, describing some of the calamities. When the Saudi crown prince, uh, you'll see, as you can see, there are loads of examples demonstrating here the Saudi stance. In, in the Riyadh summit with the ASEAN countries, which was held maybe about five, six days before this recording, Bin Salman gave a speech for five minutes. He dedicated exactly 32 seconds to the issue of Gaza. He didn't call it a war or a conflict. He called it an unfortunate violence. He didn't mention Israel by name. He did not condemn Israel. And while he suggested a return to 1967 borders, what that suggests is that the Saudi crown prince's message is, I really don't want to be brought into this. I don't want to get involved. I'm not interested in antagonizing the Israelis. And that's why the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate suggested that Saudi normalization was not off the cards and that the indications suggest that Saudi is still interested in normalization. The point here being is that while public opinion is overwhelmingly in favor of the Palestinians and even the UAE is buckling under that public opinion, we're seeing resistance from the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as he tries to maintain those ties with Israel, as he tries not to get dragged into the issue of Palestine and as he tries to focus on what he believes will be the greatest deal for him to achieve, which is a NATO-style security agreement, and finally support from the Americans for Vision 2030, which is still struggling despite Bin Salman being seven years in power. Yeah, that's very interesting, uh, Sami, and you you rather anticipate my next question, which is the extent to which Mohammed bin Salman still still sees that normalization deal with Israel as important because, as you say, he's made some pretty stiff demands. He wants this NATO-style uh, uh, deal. He wants access to American nuclear uh, technology, and 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 down at the bottom, I guess, is is Palestine some sort of a deal uh, for the Palestinians. So, do you think? Palestine is not part of the deal, by the way, Bill, just to emphasize, when Francine Lacroix of Bloomberg went and spoke to Netanyahu and she said to him that if you don't give concessions for Palestinians, how can you expect normalization? Netanyahu replied and he said, Palestine is not mentioned on the table in the way you think it is. They're not bringing it up in the way that you think it is. Reuters has reported, Bill, that that Saudi has made clear to the Americans that they are ready to set aside the demands for a Palestinian state and they will accept, quote, as Israel making life easier somewhat for the Palestinians in exchange for that. So Palestine, I don't think, is, is no longer in the list of demands. Mm, yeah, that's okay. Because that we come back to Jared Kushner, don't we, and his prosperity, uh, a peace to prosperity proposal, basically created this Bantustan effect that Netanyahu over decades has been talking about, the, the Swiss cheese effect, where you've got Palestinian communities surrounded by Israel and, and, and the West Bank largely incorporated in, into a larger Israel. So all of that suggests that for Mohammed bin Salman, and this normalization is still very much alive, despite what the Israelis are doing, uh, pounding Gaza and the extraordinary and, and constantly rising number of civilian casualties there. And that's certainly the case. I think even if you look at the limited action taken, Saudi Arabia has left its airspace open to Israeli flights. There's no indication that they've launched a protest or the ambassador in the US has launched a protest. I think that when it comes for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the like, I think they see this whole event as more of an inconvenience 
than anything worth antagonizing Netanyahu over. And the reason why I mentioned the map that Netanyahu held at the United Nations is because it gives a direct indication that Netanyahu is convinced that normalization can happen without concessions from the Palestinians. And that's not uh, Netanyahu deploying game theory or a negotiating strategy. That's Netanyahu and the Americans having received enough of an indication from the Saudis that the Palestinian issue is no longer something that Bin Salman considers to be of importance. And when you look at the way that the Saudi bots on social media have been going after the Palestinians, not the Israelis, how you see them, they're going after pro-Palestinian accounts, not the Israelis. It suggests that the orders from the royal court are one in which Bin Salman is telling them that the Saudi stance is not one that is to be seen to be in favor of Palestine. And even when you look at other countries, even Sisi has allowed protests in Egypt in support of Palestine, running the risk of them turning against him, but certainly allowing the protests to take place in Egypt. Saudi Arabia and the UAE have not allowed any protest in support or solidarity of the Palestinians. And I think that's why that when you look at bin Salman and the prospects for normalization and Jared Kushner giving a keynote speech at the Davos Forum and Blinken being received in Saudi Arabia and also Blinken believing or having the assumption that he can travel to these Arab states and publicly say that he's going there to seek their help to tamp down on public opinion, as was described in the Washington Post. The fact that Blinken believes that the relationship is not compromised by what's happening in Gaza and that he can ask these regimes for help gives an indication of the messaging coming out of Saudi Arabia with regards to normalization of ties, which is that bin Salman's demands have nothing to do with Palestine and everything to do instead with the Americans. And Biden is already making these concessions to Saudi Arabia. So bin Salman believes that given that Biden has already started to try to implement some of these uh, conditions, bin Salman doesn't want to jeopardize that now for the sake of Palestinians that it appears he doesn't consider to be a priority by any stretch of the imagination. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me uh, ask you about Qatar, because, of course, Qatar has a particular relationship with Hamas uh, funding with the agreement and support of the Israelis funding into Gaza. Is there uh, a situation here now where Qatar finds itself somewhat at odds with Saudi Arabia and and the role that uh, MBS is assuming now regarding normalization? Is there a possibility that Qatar will once again find itself rather at odds with the Saudis and indeed the Emiratis. One thing that's worth noting is that there is a, a media campaign taking place, allegedly by the UAE, but I, 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 I wouldn't be able to confirm or not, which is trying to attach Qatar to this idea of funding terrorist movements due to its support for Hamas or the like. I think there is certainly disgruntlement in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh that Blinken has been very loud in celebrating Qatar's role in the release of hostages and in maintaining negotiations with Hamas and maintaining negotiations with these groups. 
That mediating position is something that the UAE is desperately after and something that bin Salman wants to start monopolizing in the region as well. We've seen he's been trying to present himself as a mediator in a number of particular issues and he believes that's the way to cement his importance in American foreign policy which will help to enhance the view of Vision 2030 amongst the Americans and make them more amenable to supporting Vision 2030. The second point that's worth noting is when the Qataris send finances to Gaza, all of the money goes through Israel. There's no, The reason the Israelis haven't shouted loud about Qatari financial support to Hamas. The reason why it's the UAE and Saudis who are complaining about it, but not the Israelis, is because the Israelis know that the mechanism for funds that go into Gaza goes through Israel. So they're not concerned about where the money is going or or Qatar giving money to Hamas. Where the Israelis have an issue with Qatar is with regards to Al Jazeera's coverage, which has played an immense role in shifting global public opinion. You'll note the viral video of DeSantis in the supermarket in the U.S., where he's telling people that Israel has a right to self-defense and the ordinary American citizens, not ethnic, we're not talking people like me born and raised in London, but originally from North Africa. We're talking about white Americans in America itself, turning around to DeSantis and saying, I've been looking at Al Jazeera's coverage and I've seen with my own eyes what Israel is doing. I no longer believe that Israel is... Uh, 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 has the right to self-defense and that's why of course the Israelis targeted the family of Al Jazeera's correspondent in Gaza uh, where Al Dahdur whose wife and two children were killed in a targeted attack by the Israeli airstrikes. You believe that that was a targeted attack? I think that when Blinken goes to the Qataris the day before and tells them we want Al Jazeera to wind down its coverage and when you look at the 2021 conflict where Israel targeted Al Jazeera's office and they bombed the building and they openly said we're going to bomb the building of Associated Press and of Al Jazeera itself. And when you consider the demolition of Gaza that's taking place uh, in that it's about maximum damage as well, I think that... And when you also look at... uh, There is an interesting uh, email that uh, my wife received for her company in which the PR company is saying that they're ready to pay in order to help to promote Israel's narrative or the like. When you look at the extensive efforts that Israel is going to in order to push its narrative. It suggests that it's deeply concerned by the narrative and therefore it's going after the tools through which that narrative is changing, whether shadow banning Instagram accounts, whether shutting down pages on Facebook, uh, and also uh, intimidating journalists and killing not just the family of Wa'il Dahdur, but more than 20 journalists have been killed uh, in Gaza despite wearing press vests and wearing the helmets uh, themselves. So I think that when it comes to the issue of targeting journalists or indeed Qatar's relationship, The issue that they have with Qatar is Al Jazeera's coverage, which has been relentless and shifting in public opinion. I think that's where Israel has a problem, but it doesn't have an issue with regards to Qatar's ties with Hamas. And there are even suggestions now, although they're not confirmed, that part of the negotiations is Qatar and Israel Israel is demanding that the Hamas leaders relocate somewhere else outside of Gaza. And the Qataris are trying to discuss and debate the possibility of this and where they might be able to go in a similar manner to, I think it is 1993, where the PLO agreed to move to Tunis, to move to Tunisia, as part of an agreement for a ceasefire and de-escalation and for the Oslo Accords. Mm. You know, it's a very, it's it, once again, it's a very uh, entangled and, and obviously very dangerous situation. You know, there are those, Sami, that, that argue that the response of the Arabs, the people, not their leaders, to the savagery of Israel's attack on Gaza could ignite a second Arab Spring. What do you make of that argument? I think there's certainly a fear that it might ignite an Arab Spring. I think when I think for in Jordan, in Egypt, in some of these places, there's certainly a concern 
that it might ignite an Arab Spring. I think in Turkey, Erdogan is concerned that it will result in a plummeting of support for him in that the Turks are coming out and blaming him for having been quiet. And that's why we've seen a rapid acceleration in his rhetoric. I think that there are concerns even in Egypt that if they let people out onto the streets, people will do as they did last week, go to Maidan at Tahrir, they'll go to Tahrir Square and start demanding for a revolution or the like. But I think that for the regimes, there is also a discussion over whether this actually presents an opportunity to wipe the sins of the past. So the idea being that the issue is so great in the eyes of the, Arab, eyes of the Arabs that if Sisi was to come out and give a state of union address, for example, uh, to the Egyptians and tell them we're taking a hard stance on Palestine, I actually think he would be able to garner sweeping support. So it's a double-edged sword in that, yes, the protests suggest there might be an Arab Spring movement, but if these regimes actually play it well, and it doesn't look like they are, but if they played it well, they could actually start a new chapter in their relationship with their people by channeling that. And if you consider that, for example, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia in 1973, he's not remembered for any of his policies in Saudi Arabia. He's remembered and revered solely for the oil embargo that he imposed that forced the Americans to rein in the Israelis in 1973 when they pushed back the Egyptians and the Syrians and when they had started marching into their territories. That single act alone has put King Faisal into the history books and he's celebrated in every Arab home. So the idea being is this is a golden opportunity to go down in history. Whether the Arab regimes will take it or not is not clear yet, but certainly just as much as there is a potential for an Arab Spring movement, there is equally a potential for a reset in the relations between the regimes and their people. And I think the regimes are uncomfortable as to which direction they should go in this regard. Very interesting. I mean, you, you've already said that Mohammed bin Salman seems to be taking a particular position on this one. But as you say, Sisi is, is in a bit of a bind himself and and obviously trying to take some of that energy and channel it away from the economic failures that he's inflicted upon the uh, the Egyptians would take some of the pressure off him. Just on the issue of Sisi, Bill, it, it, it's it's worth noting here Sisi's crisis now with, with, with Gaza is that the Israelis and the Americans want him to take in the Palestinians who are fleeing Gaza. And Sisi knows that if he takes in those Palestinians, the historians will write in the history books that Egypt was complicit in, the ne- in, in, in another Nakba. And I think Sisi's pressure now is that he's being bullied by the Israelis and the Americans, but has no support from the Arabs to resist that bullying. And that's why I think Sisi is in a very awkward position where he doesn't want to open that crossing. He's under pressure to do so for humanitarian reasons, but he knows the moment he opens that crossing and the Palestinians cross over into Gaza, Israel would annex and never allow the Palestinians to go back. So Sisi is in, in an in awkward position, not just over the economy, but because he's facing a disaster on his hands. Mm, indeed, indeed. Well, yeah, as I was saying, the uh, the story continues just as the bombing and the suffering of the Gazans continues. And uh, we don't know yet where this will end, but uh, it, it, it is dangerous times we're living in, Sami. It is very dangerous times. And there are reports at the time of the recording, the night before the recording, it appears Israel's have started some ground raids into Gaza as they mull the utility of a ground invasion. They're still concerned whether that it's worth it or not because the Iranians are lining up in Lebanon and Syria. The proxies are lining up in order to take advantage of if the Israelis get bogged down. There's also concern that ground invasions have failed in the past. It's unclear if it will succeed this time. But it certainly looks like we're not headed for de-escalation soon. And Netanyahu is still mulling an escalation, not because the Israelis want it. The Israeli polls suggest that everybody blames Netanyahu and that they want his resignation. 
The reason that there's continued escalation is not because Israel believes it has strategic aims to achieve, but because Netanyahu is convinced that if he stops the escalation now, there will be an inquiry into what happened and the Israelis will end his political future and force him to resign. Netanyahu is the one now in favor of a ground invasion, not the Israelis. Netanyahu is the one who needs the ground invasion, not the Israelis. The reality is now it's Netanyahu who's the sole obstacle to de-escalation because he's terrified for his political future. And it appears that he's now putting Israel's interest and the Palestinian lives on the line to rescue his own future when the majority of Israelis would actually prefer to see a de-escalation now. Mm, yeah, yeah, that, that is the case as with Netanyahu playing for time and using every weapon at his disposal to try and save his political skin. And meanwhile, Israelis and, of course, Palestinians are paying a horrific price for his uh, political ambitions and his efforts to continue as the uh, prime minister of Israel. We'll leave it there, Sammy. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of The International Interest. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcasts with no advertising. Arab Digest has no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Sammy. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.